I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. It was the end of February, barely a week ago, and the pundits were starting to write their obituaries for Joe Biden's presidential campaign. He'd gotten clobbered in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. Money was drying up. Donors and consultants were nervous. And Mike Bloomberg seemed about to take over the moderate lane in the Democratic primaries. Enter Congressman James Clyburn, the dean of the South Carolina delegation and the highest-ranking African-American in Congress. On the eve of the South Carolina primary, he delivered his long-awaited endorsement. And it was Biden, with whom he had been friends for 40 years, who got the nod, along with a lecture from Clyburn about what the former vice president needed to do to write his campaign. Biden won South Carolina in a landslide and then went on to smashing victories on Super Tuesday, making him the new prohibitive favorite to win the nomination and Clyburn, the party's new kingmaker. We'll talk to Clyburn himself and we'll talk to our old Newsweek colleague, Evan Thomas, whose grandfather ran for president six times as the Socialist Party candidate on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. It is so rare when we go to an election night and the voters completely confound the pundits and the pollsters and uh, deliver a verdict that is completely unexpected. I suppose it did happen in 2016 when Donald Trump was elected president. But in many ways, Biden's performance on Super Tuesday was every big as much an upset. Nobody expected him to do as well as he did. Yeah, it's it's what's great about politics is uh, how often the voters actually upend all of our assumptions and, and predictions about what's going on. And we started to see it literally the morning of the election. There were new polls, the first polls that had really come out after South Carolina that showed this incredible surge by Biden. And then it was reflected in, in the results. And I think there are a couple of things here. One is we should remember that Joe Biden at the start of this primary campaign, was the most popular Democrat running. He was leading for a long time in the national polls. And then all of a sudden, he started to debate and people got rattled because he clearly Because he had, got rattled. Because he got rattled. He'd yeah. lost his edge. He'd lost his fastball, you know, wobbly. whatever. Pick your, your metaphor. And he seemed he seemed old. And so so I think what happened over time is... Biden found a way to, was there's that old Rod Stewart song, A Reason to Believe. People like Joe Biden. They think he's a decent guy. They also thought that he was probably the most electable in the group, would really be able to go at Donald Trump for a whole variety of reasons. And they wanted to get to yes with Joe Biden. And for a variety of reasons, they got nervous about Sanders' electability. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, frankly, the last debate where, where Sanders went on about Fidel Castro or, or was not well, really That was actually to, on 60 Minutes when uh, he 60 said— minutes. But then know. he was asked again. Uh, when he said on 60 Minutes, he praised Fidel Castro's literacy program and, and health care. But then he was asked about it in the debate. And he had there was a moment where he could have said— this was a horribly repressive regime. Thousands of people were tortured and killed and imprisoned, and I condemn it. And instead, it was a broad condemnation of authoritarian governments. He just couldn't go there. And I think that freaked out people. And so the combination of, you know, then Biden doing really well in South Carolina, 
getting those endorsements, which is what we were going to talk about with Jim Clyburn. And that was a that was the I can't remember a moment when you know we sort of you know endorsements don't really, generally speaking, have that much uh, influence. Um, this one really did. And then, you know, Biden did start to do a little better. I think he was feeling more confident. Well, the he speeches did. he gave after he won in South Carolina showed that he was much sharper uh, than he had been before. And all of those reasons and the unswerving support of, I think, very pragmatic African-American voters in the South made Super Tuesday romp for him. Right. And I don't think anybody expected that he was going to do as well across the board as he did. Yes, with South Carolina and the strong support from African-Americans kind of made it likely he was going to do very well and win in North Carolina and probably Virginia. But the margins that he did were striking. But then Massachusetts, nobody anticipated that. Minnesota, nobody anticipated that. Very few predicted Texas. So I think if anybody should be dropping out right now, it should be the Nat Silvers of the world <laughs> who got this all wrong. And I'm sure we'll hear from them saying, well, yeah, but we had caveats in there. But the bottom line is, if you look at what 538 and other places were saying just a week out, they were all predicting a huge Bernie Sanders day on Super Tuesday. And they were flat out wrong. Just a two Quick points. One is you noted that Biden slipped because he seemed old and wasn't doing better in the debates and wasn't doing well in the debates. Well, he's done a bit better, but he hasn't gotten any younger. So if people were nervous about Biden's performance before, I'm not sure they could like breathe totally easier going into what's going to be a very grueling general election and campaign. And there's, we, we, there's um, one more debate on the schedule right, right now, which is on the 15th. There may be more after that. We'll see. And we we now know that uh, Elizabeth Warren, today when we're recording this podcast, dropped out of the race. So it is going to be a debate between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, yeah. two very old white men, which <laughs> two will, which old will white be guys interesting. One thing I wanted the to last say, yeah. men standing for the Democratic Party nomination. Th this is going to be an interesting test uh, for Bernie Sanders. And it is a test of how nimble a politician he is, because when you start to lose and fall behind, which has happened to him, do you just double down or do you see or, or do you try to pivot and figure out a way to fix maybe what's not working? And, you know, there's that old adage in politics, which is, you know, politics is about addition, not subtraction. And Bernie Sanders' campaign is premised on the idea that he would be able to expand the electorate, bring in more young voters, more Latino voters. He, as a percentage of the vote in, in 2016, he has not done that. In fact, there are fewer young voters and Latino voters voting for him. He has not added. He has subtracted. And this is going to be tested in Michigan in a week, and we'll see what happens. I, I was just going to say that debate in Phoenix may be irrelevant if Bernie doesn't win in Michigan. Well, I mean, you know, the, the race can may effectively be over. There's a Detroit News poll out as we speak on this Thursday that has Biden now eight points up in Michigan. If he takes Michigan, a state that Bernie Sanders had carried last time in 2016 against Hillary Clinton. If Biden takes that, I think it's over. But look, the point is, we would not be here today and we would not be having anything like this discussion if it hadn't been for James Clyburn. So let's talk to him right now. We are now joined by the man himself, Congressman James Clyburn of South Carolina. Congressman, welcome to Skullduggery. Well, thanks for having me. Quite a week uh, in American politics. And I want to start out by playing for you a clip of an exchange on Super Tuesday night as the returns were rolling in and Joe Biden was uh, chalking up his victories between Brian Williams and James Carville. Let's listen. What is the message to Democrats tonight in your right. view? Uh, first on, I want to offer a hand gesture to Congressman Clyburn. That. There you go. <laughs> that guy literally saved the Democratic Party. 
Congressman, did you save the Democratic Party? Oh, uh, I think that's a bit hyperbole. I um, really was only attempting to try and get Joe Biden in the position to have a chance uh, of um, becoming the nominee. And I felt very strongly uh, after such poor showings uh, in the first two contests. Three, actually. Well, three. Uh, it was a fair showing in the third. Uh, poor in the first two. 20 points behind. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I kind of felt that uh, Joe was being a bit constrained. Deep down inside, I saw a candidate that was not a reflection of the man himself. I've spent a lot of time with Joe Biden over the years. I, I know him very well. Uh, my late wife, uh, who's a real political partner of mine, saw in Joe everything that she would want to see in a political leader. But none of that was coming through. And he was just getting just destroyed. And I thought it had a lot to do with his having become a victim of the Me Too movement. You know, he was um, accused of making uh, women feel uncomfortable uh, with his gestures. And uh, he was just a feel a touch kind of guy who he and my wife hugged all the time. It's just the kind of guy that he is. So he was capping as if he had his hands in his pockets, afraid to touch anybody. And then in that very first debate, he got, as we said, down in the hood, he got hit upside the head uh, with the busing thing. But Joe's from Delaware. Delaware, like South Carolina, was one of the five states uh, involved in Brown v. Board of Education. Everybody focused on Kansas City, they don't realize that one of those cases, Belton v. Gephardt, uh, it was a Delaware case. Briggs v. Egg was a South Carolina case. The Davis case down in Virginia, the Bolton case in D.C., these five cases all wrapped into one. So Joe and I spent a lot of time over the years talking about our states, Delaware being the eighth blackest state in the union, percentage-wise, and our backgrounds are similar. But I wanted to help him break through. And if you recall what I said at the time, they asked me, are you trying to stop burning? No, I'm trying to create a surge uh, for Biden. And that's all I was trying to do. Well, you certainly did that. And uh, the turnaround uh, was pretty remarkable. Before your endorsement, and Biden was having all these troubles in all these other states, what were you hearing from your constituents in South Carolina? They really wanted to vote for Joe. Their heart was with him. But the heads were saying, if he comes here uh, all beaten up without any chance, shouldn't we be looking at the next best thing? And I understood that. So I felt that, would, that made it really, really tough. But then it was sealed. The deal was sealed. When I went to the funeral service of my longtime accountant, and when I got to the church about 30 minutes early, uh, I was speaking to people. And over on the far pew of the church, far end of the front pew, was an elderly African-American woman who looked over at me, and she gestured with her hands for me to come to her. And I did. And she says, lean down. I need to ask you a question. And if you don't want anybody to hear the answer, just whisper it in my ear. Who are you going to vote for? And so I leaned down and whispered in her ear, Joe Biden. And she just snapped her head back and looked in my eyes and she says, this community needs to hear from you. And I knew from that that uh, something was going on. And that same day, four or five other people at the church said something to me about the campaign. And they we're really looking for guidance. So I decided to give guidance. Hmm. But 
It sounds like early in the campaign, you were a little rattled by Biden's performance. I think you told the Washington Post he was off kilter. Yeah. Uh, he was knocked off his stride. Yeah. What turned it around for him? And I guess one question I have is because you've also been critical of, of the Biden campaign. Yeah. Was he being overhandled by the campaign, do you think? They weren't letting Joe Biden be Joe Biden? Or do you think it was more what you had referred to before about him being a victim of the Me Too movement? Well, I think it was a combination of both. Sure, uh, he is being scripted because I watch him looking down at his notes too much. You don't have the long-time experience that he's had in state government or, or federal government and not know these issues. And so I felt very strongly that he needed to be himself. He needed to loosen up. He need not be so constrained by not wanting to touch people. I've seen even that night there in South Carolina. Um, he would walk the rope line. People were grabbing him and hugging him and uh, showing their feelings. You just can't walk around with your hands in your pockets and people uh, are showing their feelings. And, and I just thought that he was, um, and maybe that was just him wanting to uh, be too careful. And of course, those notes, somebody was writing them. So my whole thing is, uh, my wife made me stop giving uh, written speeches. My wife just told me one day, says, I want you to stop reading speeches. You read them in your car, read them at home. But when you stand before that mic and look at the audience, I want you looking at them and I want you talking to them. You can't talk to them if you're reading everything. And so I said that to him. Let me ask a political question about the two parties, because one of the things I think is striking about what just happened in this Democratic primary and what happened to the Republicans in 2016, there's some similarities. You know, you had Absolutely. a lot of people on those debate stages. You had, you know, in both cases, you had a, a very ideological candidate, then Trump, this time Bernie Sanders, who wanted to upend the system. And very crowded lanes. And on the Republican side, as we all know, that field remained divided throughout the entire campaign, practically, which, which allowed uh, Trump to, to triumph in this particular case. It looked like that is exactly what was going to happen, and it didn't in the end, partly because of what happened in South Carolina, partly because of what you did. I guess my question is, did the Democrats learn from 2016, did they learn the, the mistake the Republicans made, which got Trump nominated? Or is there something fundamentally different about these two parties, something about the Democratic Party that, uh, that kept that from happening? I don't think there's any difference at all. I just think one's right and one's left. But the same thing was happening. I agree with you. One of the problems we uh, often have in politics is that um, people tend to ignore the historical context of stuff. Well, I don't. To me, history is instructive. And what I'm seeing in my party today is not necessarily what happened to the Republicans four years ago, but it's what happened to the Democrats. And it's happened time and time again. I remember from observations, I was not there, but the 1964 convention at Atlantic City and what that did to our party. I remember uh, the 1968 in Chicago and what that did to our party. I remember in 1972, I was there in Miami in 1972, and I saw ideology take over the party. And they were very pleased with themselves when they gave us George McGovern. Uh, How did that go? Yeah, <laughs> and we won one state yeah. in the District of Columbia. And I could see all of that bubbling up again. I remember those battles. Jesse Jackson Sr. and I were on different sides of the equation. They, he was over there with George McGovern. They were talking about uh, all the so-called progressive movement. Well, that gave us Richard Nixon. And I could see this stuff today giving us another uh, four years. You're talking Trump. about if Bernie Sanders were to become the nominee, it would be a replay of George McGovern in 1972. That's exactly what I feel. And I like Bernie. I don't have a problem with Bernie. I don't have a problem with anybody's ideology. But I'm the majority whip, and I kind of enjoy being majority whip. <laughs> <laughs> and and I don't want you to be a minority, like, nothing outside of that which 
I was born with. I right. got a certain birthright to minority. <laughs> I don't want the political process giving to me uh, that status. When you uh, endorsed, or I guess before you endorsed, you famously gave Biden a critique of his campaign, and it has been described as effectively tough love. You were tough about what he needed to do and how the campaign needed to change itself. Tell us about your conversation with Biden. Well, part of what I just shared with you is what uh, my late wife said to me. He knew her very well. And I think he had more respect for Emily uh, than he has for me. And I shared with him this whole technique. And I said to him, I said, is the reason uh, ministers, and I'm the son of one, preach sermons in threes. Their sermons are in threes. It's not just the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. It's all about what people remember and what they can feel. And I just told him that I thought that his information was fine, platform great, but people were not feeling him. They were hearing him, but not feeling him. And you cannot develop that feel unless you connect with people looking at them. And I just said to him, I want you, no matter what the question is, break it down in threes. Let them know what your election will mean for them, what it would mean for their families, and what it would mean for their communities. Just keep that those three things in mind. So if you're in a, uh, in a debate and someone asks a question, think about those three things. How would it impact the person personally? How would it impact the person's family? How would it impact the person's community? So that's basically what I said to him. And I just think that um, I went through some examples of what I was talking about just from his own platform. Let's take healthcare. Mm-hmm. If you could talk to somebody about the Affordable Care Act, and he is wedded to the Affordable Care Act, so am I. He wants to see it move to the next level, the public option. So am I. And I said to him, look, the Civil Rights Act that everybody talks about came to us over an eight-year period. We passed the Civil Rights Act in 1964. We didn't get voting until '65. We didn't get the fair housing law until 68. We didn't even outlaw discrimination in the public sector in employment until 1972. So over an eight-year period, we keep saying the Voting Rights Act. So you got to get people to understand, we've got the Affordable Care Act now. We're going to try to get the public option uh, next. And we may eventually get uh, to Medicare for all, but the system cannot absorb that. And people understand that in one fell swoop. And uh, so... That's the kind of talk I have with him. Okay, so Joe Biden still has to win the nomination, and then he's got to, if he does, he's got to go on and and defeat uh, Donald Trump, and it's not going to be a cakewalk. I want to get to that in a second. One last question on the endorsement. Uh, A lot of people have been wondering what, if any, role President Obama may have played behind the scenes. Rumors about conversations he may have had. I just want to know on the record here, did you have any conversations with President Obama about the Biden nomination? Absolutely not. Okay. So you have not spoken to him about this? Absolutely okay. have not. Okay. Do you think he ought to endorse um, in the primary? Would you well, like to see him do that, endorse at, uh, Biden? At the proper time, probably should. If, if we're going to bring this party together, I think he's a part of bringing it together, but not today. But which is, but, but before Milwaukee? No, I don't think so. Not until after. You mean uh, Milwaukee? Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm thinking Michigan. Uh, (laughs) Michigan is Tuesday. Michigan's Tuesday. But before the the Democratic convention, should Barack Obama endorse, presumably he would endorse. uh, I would think so. You would like him to do that. I would think so. Look, this whole notion about having a broken convention, here's the problem. We uh, agreed to do some things, and and this is a real problem I have with the way we uh, even do these primary elections. We are in the shape we're in because we allow our. Remember, February, we never, until the last time around, we created this pre-primary window when Iowa started, the legislature said, we're going to be first no matter what. You can go all the way back to December if you want to, and we're going to put ours in November. I think it's time for us to look at our party and say to Iowa, you're not, you're a great state, <laughs> but you're not a reflection of uh, the demographics of our party. Uh, so if you're going to have Iowa going number one, have two number ones. 
Well, let me yeah. you talk about not being a uh, Iowa not being a reflection of this country, but I said the party. The okay, of but my party. Right, uh, right, okay, but this Democratic primary field uh, the expectation is that uh, Elizabeth Warren will get out. You've got two white men who are almost eighty years old, and in the general election, you'll have three. So what do I, I mean, I have two. Uh, well, only one of those septuagenarians is going to survive to November. Well, sure, it's but I mean, right two. now, yeah, three, absolutely. Yeah. I've got In November, two, there'll still be two. I've got, yeah, two, teen, two. I've got yeah. two teenage daughters at home, um, and they're looking at this race, and they're looking at these old white men, and they're, you know, how do I tell them this is progress? Well, I'm going to tell you what I say. This, I'm, a lot of people don't like me saying this, but I don't care. <laughs> uh, I'm nine years beyond the promise. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask everybody. Would you rather have an old Thurgood Marshall sitting on the Supreme Court or a young Clarence Thomas? Now, that ought to tell you what I feel about it. So Biden looks in a pretty good position right now. Do you expect this race to be over in the next couple of weeks? I would hope it would be um, close to conclusion because, as I said earlier, we, we're living on some rules that we need to get serious about uh, doing. Yeah, I was on the so-called McGovern Commission back in 19, after the 1972 convention. And that's why uh, I, I tell people all the time, you ought to study a little bit the evolution of this, and you know why our system is so bad. We need to change this because, let's stick right now the rules say, I cannot vote on the first round. If you go to the convention, they took away uh, the unplaced delegates' ability to vote. Yeah. No, I'm an unplaced delegate. You all give us that name. We didn't give ourselves that name. Oh, okay. In our rules, <laughs> I'm unplaced. All right. Now, I only get a chance to vote if it goes to a second ballot. So you're telling me we built into our rules a broken convention? No. So it's not broken. If I can't vote until the second round, that's when I get a chance to vote. Let me. So um, we're not be brokering. Right. Look, everybody in the Biden camp is breathing much better today than they were a week ago. But there's going to be a ferocious general election battle, assuming Biden is the uh, nominee. And I want to read you something that Fox News's Tucker Carlson was saying just last night about Biden. To the cynical and darkly clever people who run the Democratic Party, Biden's fading intellect is not a handicap, it's an opportunity. Joe Biden is weak, he's getting weaker. Ask anyone who knows him or has watched him carefully over the past 50 years, Biden is noticeably more confused now than he was even last spring when he entered the race. Why is this good news for the Democratic establishment in Washington? Because it means they can control him. This is going to be the critique of uh, uh, Joe Biden going forward from Fox News and the Republicans. Just watch what we do to Trump going forward. Yeah, do tell. It, what are you going to do? This game. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, look, I, I, I tell you, you know, I don't know what my partners going to do, but I darn well know what I'm going to do. And, and I'm going to tell you, I won't be alone. We are going to play that game, but we're going to play it better. Uh, tell us, how are you going to play that game? Look at the facts. Here's a guy who gave a State of the Union, uh, and according to the Washington Post, told 31 lies in the State of the Union. And with every one of these lies, the, about half of them, the other side standing up and cheering. Uh, just think about that 30-second video uh, with an obvious lie put on the screen and watching all the Republicans stand up and cheer, and we are zero in on the face uh, of, of Mitch McConnell uh, in his campaign for re-election down there in Kentucky. Oh, yeah, I got some great ideas as to how we're going to play that game uh, come the November elections, and I think I know how to play it better than they do. All right, so we're, 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 I think we're getting to that point in this campaign uh, when people are going to legitimately start asking about Veep stakes. Um, mm -hmm. And so I want to know whether you think Joe Biden ought to pick a, uh, an African-American running mate, a black woman, perhaps, uh, what would you like to see him do in terms of a running mate? I doubt very seriously that you'll see a Democratic slate this year without a woman on it. Uh, Should it be a person of color? I would love for it to be a, a person of color. Who's your candidate? Uh, I do have a candidate. And who's that? 
I'm not telling you. I'm going to tell that to whoever. Well, let me, uh, Kamala Harris, Stacey Abrams. I'm not telling you. Is she from Georgia or California? (laughs) But but either of those would be. It would be a woman. I'm not narrowing it down to those two. And have you you discussed this with, uh, with Vice President Biden? Not, I've not discussed the VP stuff yeah, with him. Yeah. No. Congressman, you're known as a person who um, uh, speaks for civility in public life. So I want to ask you about some remarks that uh, Senate Minority Leader Schumer said yesterday yeah. uh, outside the Supreme Court. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. Was that an appropriate thing for Senator Schumer? Well, so the explanation, if as reported, that's what his intent uh, was, that would not be an appropriate thing to say. I saw the explanation. I think it was a poor uh, choice of words and um, uh, talking about the Supreme Court or any other. Yeah, the, expl- well, given, the explanation yeah. from Senator Schumer's office is he was talking about the price Senate Republicans would pay, but that's not what he said. He said Gorsuch yeah. Yeah. Right. and Kavanaugh. And, and given where the, you know, the, the tone of rhetoric in this country and what we hear from the president on almost a daily basis, do you think that uh, Senator uh, Schumer ought to say something a little more forthright, maybe get out there and, and apologize for those remarks. Well, I don't know about that. I'll leave it up to him. We all uh, sometimes use a bit of a preferably when we uh, uh, say things. But we shouldn't, uh, so. should we not acknowledge that when we do that? Well, I'm going to leave it up to him. Yeah. Uh, I handle my politics the way I want to, and I'll let the man he is. But um, the fact remains, the rhetoric on both sides get too heated sometimes. Right, and this would be an example of that. I'm not saying that. You're trying, No, you're trying. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, look. Uh, I always speak for myself in this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. um, all right. Uh, going forward, uh, we understand. Uh, you know, the Biden people wanted you to go to Michigan, but you need some rest. Yeah. But will you be out there uh, on the campaign trail in the forthcoming primary? States? Absolutely, absolutely. I am. Um, but two of my daughters. I have three of them. I uh, have said they detected stuff in my speech and in my eyes that indicated I need to get some rest. And I looked back over the last couple of weeks, and I have been going pretty pretty good. So I just thought that I would get some rest this weekend. I know we got to let you get you out of here because you got to vote uh, mm-hmm. up. In the, but I got one last question, which mm-hmm. is: uh, I know you have worked closely in the past with uh, Senator uh, Sanders. You worked mm-hmm. on. Uh, on uh, some health care legislation. You to got some stuff passed, right? Sure. Do you admire him? Are there things about Senator Sanders that you admire? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Look, I love my grandson. Uh, <laughs> he's 25 years old. He's uh, the one that endorsed Mayor Pete, if I recall exactly right. correctly. Yeah. And, it was right. in his ads. Yeah. So this is not personal with me. Uh, this is what I feel the country needs at this particular juncture. And this is about who I think uh, would be best suited to be president. Uh, so it's got nothing to do with any personal stuff. I hope he doesn't take anything personal with me. Well, thank you so much, thank uh, you. Congressman Clyburn. We're really happy to have you on the show, and uh, good good luck out there on the campaign trail. Well, thank you guys very okay. much for having me. Thank you. Very good. Shortly after we taped this podcast, Senator Schumer retracted his comments about Supreme Court Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, saying, I should not have used the words I used yesterday. They didn't come out the way I intended to. Also, right after this podcast, Senator Warren dropped out of the presidential race. I would point out that uh, while I have not achieved many of the things I cared most about, I have come nearer hitting the nail on the head of what the people would adopt later than most candidates for president or other office. I'm no Don Quixote tilting at windmills when I was the pioneer on so much social legislation as the country now has. That was Norman Thomas, the Socialist Party candidate for president, six times starting in 1928. 
He was talking there on a firing line with William F. Buckley in 1966, making the point that much of what he advocated when he ran for president in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s would later be adopted by Congress and future presidents. Worth remembering with all the talk about socialism in America and what the dangers could be. We are joined now by our old Newsweek colleague, Evan Thomas, the grandson of Norman Thomas, the socialist. Evan, welcome back to Skullduggery. Great to be back with you guys. So when you hear your grandfather talking about how he was a man ahead of his time in terms of pressing for social legislation that would later be adopted, what's your reaction? Well, it's true. I mean, he was just pushing for the welfare state, and they got it. He was unpopular because socialism, the word socialism, felt wrong to Americans in the 1930s, uh, especially when FDR was offering the New Deal. And so he was considered to be a radical, kind of a dangerous radical by some. Uh, so he never got more than he got less than a million votes. I mean, he got buried by FDR. He didn't just I think lose. I, I think I he read that his high water mark in those six elections was two point two percent. Yeah. So he just got wiped out. And so he was not politically successful. In fact, uh, <laughs> FDR said to him, the problem with you, Norman, is you're not a good politician. And my grandfather answered, well, that's why you're sitting on that side of the desk and I'm sitting on this side. <laughs> he was not a good politician, but he was right about the welfare state. I mean, he was he could see it coming. You know, we're talking about child labor laws, slum clearance, uh, housing for the poor and civil rights, too. He was way ahead of his, the curve. Yeah, I, I, I've got here the Socialist Party platform in 1932, which I think was the second time he ran for president. And. You know, by today's standards, it's pretty uh, milquetoast yeah. in a way. Compulsory system of unemployment compensation with adequate benefits uh, based on contributions by the government employers, old age pensions for men and women, health and maternity insurance, improved systems of workmen's compensation, adequate minimum wage laws, the enforcement of constitutional guarantees of economic, political and legal equality for the Negro. Uh, Vote socialist, man. It's all there. <laughs> right. Uh, and so it all it all got adopted yeah. eventually, slowly, but with one important exception. He was also in favor of, of nationalizing large industries, the railroads and steel and all that. That was a wrong, wrong. I mean, fortunately, we didn't do that, and that would have been a mistake. So he well, was he yeah. was he was prescient in some areas, but on this area of nationalizing great sectors of the economy. I don't think he was right about that. I mean, even Denmark, the all country that we all want to be, is is pretty good about free market stuff. But even Bernie Sanders, not more recently, but earlier in his career, was in favor when he was mayor in Burlington. He was in favor of nationalizing the public utilities or making what are now public utilities, but were then mostly private, nationalizing the oil industry. Um, and he moved away from that um, as well. So you... You knew him as a as a kid. He lived near you. Uh, tell us a little bit about him and he how how he came to be the six time socialist president uh, uh, presidential candidate. Uh, he got there through religion. He was the son of a very strict Presbyterian minister that believed in heaven and hell, and so it, around 1900, when my grandfather was a theological student and deciding that he didn't really believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible, it left a kind of hole in his heart. I mean, once you don't believe in the virgin birth and the resurrection and all that stuff, I mean, what do you believe in? He's looking for a new ism. And it really came up through war. In World War I, the church was—he was by then an ordained minister— the church was pro-war, and he thought that was wrong. And he thought the church was, was kind of not paying enough attention to the poor— and the dispossessed. He was working in settlement housework in New York in really kind of crummy areas. And so he felt the church really, not only did he not believe in the resurrection, but he also didn't believe that they were on the side of the poor and that they were on the wrong side on the war. All those things drove him into the arms of the Socialist Party, which was anti-war and pro-poor people. And so that was the road he took to get there. It wasn't just that he thought he was on the wrong side of the world. He was a pacifist. He was a right? pacifist. Yeah. Well, um, he was a pacifist during World War uh, I. But not on December 8, 1941, he, he changed his tune. Although his, my namesake, Evan, 
his brother remained a pacifist even in World War II. So the hardcore pacifists stick, stuck with it. But my grandfather didn't. I mean, he, once America had been attacked, he was pro-war. And he was anti-communist as well. It is a little complicated because you think of him as, you know, pinko socialist. But actually, he was an early anti-communist because he saw that the Russians were selling snake oil and that they were really not good for individual rights. This is a little confusing from a guy who believes in state control, but he was also very big. He was a founder of the ACLU in World War I. I mean, back when Woodrow Wilson was throwing individual rights into the trash can, free speech and all that, uh, my grandfather with Roger Baldwin was started, it was first called the National Civil Liberties Union, but it became the American Civil Liberties Union. So he was on, on that side early on, and he saw that the commie, the real commies, <laughs> the Russian commies, were dictators and running secret prisons. And so he was an early, but uh, yeah. uh, Trotsky, Leon Trotsky said about my grandfather, he was a socialist as a result of a misunderstanding. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what was the misunderstanding? He didn't get the dictatorship of the proletarian <laughs> part. <laughs> right. But you, you, you mentioned the ACLU, and I, when I was reading up a little bit on your grandfather, there was an interesting split between Norman Thomas and the ACLU, because apparently, the, I, I didn't realize this, the ACLU actually supported Roosevelt's internment of uh, the Japanese yes. uh, during World War II, and your father was... Uh, very much against it, and uh, grandfather, grandfather was very yeah, much against yeah. it, and a strong civil libertarian. The ACLU, for much of it in the 40s and 50s, was very wimpy. They didn't stand up to Joe McCarthy. They were a weak organization, and they went along with the Japanese internment. To my grandfather's everlasting credit, he was one of the few voices, and there were very few in 1942, who said, we cannot do this. We can't throw these Japanese into internment camps, not anymore concentration camps, but internment camps. Yeah. That was a very minority point of view. Uh, you know, Walter Lippmann, all the big press, everybody was so scared about a Japanese invasion that they were saying, well, and the Supreme Court, Karamatsu, uh, said that, uh, you know, you can do this. And a very, very few people, I think the U.S. Attorney General was against it. Uh, and, and a few people like my grandfather, but it was a small group. So you mentioned before that even though your grandfather's platform was not all that radical, certainly when you look at it by today's standards. The word socialism was a no-no in the 1930s. But I'm just wondering, from today's perspective, after Bernie Sanders' not pretty lackluster performance on Super Tuesday, if that isn't still the case. Oh, I think it is. I think for older people like us, because we remember, I'm 69, about to be 69, we remember... Uh, when it was a kind of a scary word, because it was associated with the Russians and state control, and it, it got mixed in with all those things. Uh, it got a bad name in Great Britain, where the Labor Party drove Great Britain off the edge of a cliff. So socialism didn't do all that. Well, it, really, it was an economic downer. Now, since then, these Northern European countries have done pretty well with a modified version of socialism. So we're now looking at Sweden and Denmark in particular and Finland and, and thinking, you know, hey, maybe socialism, young people especially, and even old people like me, are thinking maybe that kind of so democratic socialism is not so bad as long as you don't screw too much with the free markets, that you got to let capitalism go. But the idea of having a big welfare state this is particularly appealing to young people like my own children when we think about global warming. You're going to have to have a big government footprint to do anything about global warming. To do something about climate change, the, the government's going to have to get involved big time. And so that's one reason why socialism is not scary to young people. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think the story here is Bernie Sanders' inability to win the Democratic nomination, which hasn't happened yet, but it looks like that's where it's going, is not a measure of how these ideas um, in our culture are not resonating. I think the fact that he got as far as he has suggests yeah, that, that with do. younger people, they really are resonating. I know that's true with my, uh, my kids as well. But, so, but as you say, it's a split. I mean, look, he did great with young people, but young people didn't really turn out yeah. <laughs> as much as he thought they would. Uh, but I agree. It's really there with young people. I feel with my own kids, you, you, you know, this, this big uh, movement for, uh, you know, not just Bernie, but, but uh, AOC, AOC and all that. Yeah. 
uh, you know, that that's real. On the other hand, and this goes to Mike's point, older people not voting for Bernie, and part of that is a memory that socialism is a sketchy word to them. If you're over the age of 65, you can remember when socialism was was the very the word socialism was enough to get my make my grandfather lose 30 to 1. So, do you see Bernie Sanders as the heir to your grandfather or are there differences in style and temperament that are worth noting? B- big differences in style and temperament. Yes. Uh Bernie Sanders seems ornery and angry all the time. Just hot and angry all the time. If you watch uh my grandfather who we jokingly used to refer to as the Red Terror. Uh, <laughs> if you watch him on on these clips, you know uh, there's a more benign cast to him. He's a gentler soul. There's more of a merry twinkle. He could do this booming Isaiah Jehovah stuff. He, he had a big voice, and he could he could lay on the moralism pretty thick. But there was with that, and always with that, a kind of gentleness that you don't see much from Bernie. Bernie's just angrier than my grandfather was. So switching gears a bit to the guy who looks right now like he's likely to be the nominee, uh, Joe Biden. You've been watching him for years. You're not quite as old as he, but uh, you know I covered him. I mean, been I around actually, for a while. Yeah, what's I, 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 I hung take? around with Biden because mm-hmm. uh, this is will date me. In the early 1980s, I covered Congress for Time Magazine, and in those days, Time Magazine was important enough that a U.S. senator was actually glad to see you. And he was a junior U.S. senator, but he was on foreign relations. And I spent a lot of time hanging around in Joe Biden's office talking about the fate of the world because in those days a reporter could get in, could get in the door, and he wasn't, he wasn't senior. So I spent a lot of time with him. He was, the good news about him was he was a thoughtful guy who really cared. I mean, he, he would have had an hour to talk about the, the fate of the world, and he was pretty well-read. But I did not think I'm going to get in trouble here. But he was—I didn't think he was the brightest bulb back then. I just didn't. I—I I, maybe I'm a snooty, irritating little journalist, which I'm sure I was. So this is partly my fault. But I—I I just didn't think he was that quick. I just didn't think he was that clever or bright. I mean, compared to say Gary Hart, who I would run into, who was a, a fellow junior senator, who was quick, 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 quick. I just didn't think he was uh, a good, a good person. Yes, but not that quick. So that's interesting because when you watch him today on the debate stage, where he's, you know, yeah. it fades at times yeah. and falters. People think it's old age. I don't think it's old age. I think he was always this way. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was always missing the, you know, he would stumble. He had verbal stumbles. He has this. Uh, I think there's a medical term for it, lageria, which is t- need to talk too much. Have you ever watched, I, I used to watch, Danny, you probably did too, judicial confirmation hearings. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. would just How many of those did you sit through? So, Danny, <laughs> yeah. you, you saw this, and, I, and yeah. I did too, not as much as you, but I remember, I, I can't remember which justice it was, he wouldn't shut up. He just, he got on this kind of lageria, kind of diarrhea of the mouth. He just couldn't stop. Well, I, I was at a, f- a four-hour dinner uh, just me and Biden um, in the executive part of a uh, private jet on the way to Libya, and he didn't stop talking for four hours. So we're going to get to that in another yeah, episode. Of, that's of, a whole of, of show. The podcast, Your but it four is four-hour dinner with yeah. Joe Biden. Yeah. It, it, it's it is extraordinary. And is I mean, there, there are people who say I don't know if this is true, but people who say that it is in some ways related to the stuttering. Because he yes. was a chronic stutterer when he was young. Right. So you overcome. And he, that. you overcome yes. it. And, and the way you overcome it is by just talking through the problem. This is, I find, sympathetic. and ad, This is the admirable Biden, the guy who overcomes obstacles, who toughs it out. And the idea of him overcoming a stutter by, by, by willing himself to talk a lot. I love that, Joe Biden. I thought the most moving thing I've seen of Biden in this campaign was, and, and this was when, I think it was after New Hampshire, uh, maybe, when he was you know kind of left for dead. It was a CNN town hall um, and uh, someone in the audience asked him a question about stuttering I think someone who'd been a stutterer and it was uh, it was incredible so empathetic so moving and you know a com- and I think that's authentic but also the retail politics uh, that he practices is really amazing too so uh, he's a he's a complicated guy and a lot of his 
he has extraordinary political talents, and then he has these these flaws. He's human. How does he uh, hold up against Donald Trump in a general? Boy, that's uh, it makes me nervous. I mean, I think I I'm in the school that Trump is a genius. I know everybody thinks he's a blithering idiot, but I don't. I I, I listen to him. He's a great talker. He speaks. I mean, he's only got ten vocabulary words. It's a, <laughs> it's, it's a very narrow range. But I think he's a genius at talking to a large section of the American people. And and I'm always reading the newspaper. The New York Times, the first three paragraphs of what an idiot and a fool and <laughs> yeah, what a liar right. he is. And then, and then they will quote a little bit of it. Yeah. And I'll think, well, actually, <laughs> that's pretty convincing. It may be not true, but it's con- right. you know, he's a great demagogue. So he's a fearful competitor. And I, I worry, as a I'm now disclosing, I'm obviously I'm, I'm a Biden partisan here, but that he's going to trip and fall when he's up against a guy who's that good at demagoguing. He just, I don't, I don't, back to the, what I said earlier, I just don't think Biden's that quick. And uh, I yeah. can see him stubbing his toe. I, I, I agree. I mean, I think, first of all, I mean, Trump, you know, everybody will make such allowances for Trump on all grounds. I mean, you expect him to say things that are screamingly false and distorted. So if he does so in a debate, you know, big deal. What's new about that? (laughs) But Biden will always be one gaffe away from disaster. And and we will all be waiting, you know, nervously to to see. I was sitting there with his wife watching Joe's uh, uh, victory speech on Tuesday night. Yeah. And they're white knuckle. (laughs) You know, okay, quit now. Stop, Joe. You're good enough. Get off the stage. You know, this kind of, it makes you nervous. Well, he started out confusing his wife and his sister, which was not a great start for your victory speech. Saying it can be kind of winning and humbling and kind of dear, but it can also be nerve wracking to see him just kind of spit, try to spit a sentence out. And so I fear that in a debate, he will get his feet tangled up. Well, that's um, going to keep everybody up late at night, I suppose, uh, going into this election. But, uh, you know, one thing which we can all expect is, and we're already seeing signs of this, the Trump people will keep coming back at Biden over Burisma, Hunter Biden, and the corruption issue. And I just don't know if that, to what degree that cuts, in part because, not because there aren't some legitimate questions there about Hunter Biden, which I think there are. I mean, he had no business taking that position on the board, and Biden should have had the wherewithal to tell his son, stay out of it. I'm in charge of Ukraine policy. You can't be making money off of what I'm doing in government. But that said, the corruption charge maybe doesn't cut as much with Biden as it did with Hillary Clinton because Biden doesn't seem that's not part of the narrative yeah, of what people think of about Joe, Joe Biden. Biden is not yeah. venal. Uh, right. You know, his his messed up son made a stupid mistake, but he's not a venal guy. I think there's going to be if if the Trump campaign and Trump himself comes at Biden with this, um, I think there is going to be a very powerful moment at some point, whether it's in a debate or in some other setting when Biden is going to say, I lost my baby girl. I lost my wife. I only have one son left. What do you think I'm going to do to that son? You think I'm going to throw him under the, you know, under the bus? And I think it's, I, I think it's going to. Um, and it's not like Trump's sons don't have a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You well, think? Right. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, there are plenty there. Well, anyway, uh, this has been a great discussion uh, and um, illuminating, uh, not just on your grandfather, but also on Biden uh, as well. So, Always great to talk to you guys. All right. Enjoy thank it. you. Thanks, Evan. Thanks to Congressman Jim Clyburn and historian and journalist Evan Thomas for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on Sirius XM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.